go into the food court at your local shopping mall, mm. no one there will ever be in that catabolic cleanup autophagic state. They're in this anabolic state the whole time, so they're constantly growing. You're listening to the Fitness Industry Podcast, powered by Australian Fitness Network. For articles, resources, and inspiration to grow your fitness business and career, go to fitnessnetwork.com.au, where you can also find a huge range of online courses, many of them accredited for CECs and other professional development credits, with up to a massive 30% savings for members of Australian Fitness Network. And for an amazing weekend of face-to-face learning, be sure to register for Filex, the main event on the fitness industry calendar, at filex.com.au. A professor of public health, Grant Schofield is well known for his work around low-carb and ketogenic eating. Here he chats with the fitness industry podcast, Katrina Cochran, about fasting, nutritional ketosis and autophagy, resisting junk food promotions and the huge impact that switching 10% of the nation's health budget from treatment to prevention could have. Welcome to the Fitness Industry Podcast. I have the pleasure today of speaking with Grant Schofield. How are you today, Grant? Good, thanks, and thanks for having me. No, thank you for being here. So, Grant, we're going to discuss a few things around you personally, but I'd like to know, just for our listeners, what's a little bit of your background in particular? Oh, I was never that interested at school. I was interested in sports, but I usually got reasonable marks, and I sort of floated through... I always wanted to get into the fitness industry and I wanted to go to phys ed school. My grandfather at the time said, no, don't do that, you'll just end up in a gym. <laughs> you know, sort of demeaning time in the 80s. And then so I went and studied a degree in physiology and then psychology and then just couldn't think of a job that I could possibly be employed to do. So I carried on studying and ended up with a, a PhD. And then I still couldn't think of a job, though. but one came up in Queensland. So I ended up moving to my first academic job as a lecturer in, in Rockhampton in Queensland where I was for 10 years and I was, I was a psychologist, I was a registered psychologist. I was hopeless, absolutely useless because my solution is to tell people what the answer is mm. which as it turns out in psychology is pretty much the worst possible any woman knows as most men still struggling with that concept. But, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, and then that was by the mid to late 90s, this whole idea of public health and, and exercise as medicine was starting to emerge and it really mm. spoke to me. I, I, in the meantime, kept up my athletics and been a professional triathlete, as had my wife, and we'd coached, and I'd got really interested in the idea that we were, in Australia where I was, becoming very inactive and we could do something about that. And I followed that for the next, well, I still am following that idea, but I think we spent a lot of money, a lot of government money actually on trials around weight loss in particular that were really ineffective. And I think I was using the the old nutrition guidelines and trying to exercise our way out of it. And I would say if being fit is possibly the single best thing you can do for your health, but as a frontline weight loss strategy, it's not that effective. And... Mm. But, uh, you know, there's um, probably a a bigger nutrition component if you have to sustain weight loss. And the guidelines, in my opinion, aren't cutting it. So that's my basic background. So I really do this duet at the moment of nutrition and, and fitness. 
Yeah, and, and that's a great combination. And it's interesting you say that, you know, exercise is a, a new medicine moving forward. And that's, that's something I think that's becoming quite prominent in the industry. So when you're looking at this, prevention is cure. That's something that you've mentioned to me. And food is medicine and fitness is medicine. Can you give us a little bit more detail around that in particular about how prevention is cure with food and fitness medicine? Well, there's not a single disease in the history of humanity that's been, we've cured our way out of the symptoms. Mm-hmm. We've, we've stopped it by not getting it in the first place. So we're looking for the cure for cancer, we're looking mm-hmm. for the cure for heart disease. They're not getting them in the first place, and we know the causes. Mm-hmm. And the, well, let's put it this way, in Australia, we spend $70 billion on health. And when we say health, we don't actually mean health, we mean fixing up sick people. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's, it's less than half of 1% spent in this prevention space and, and the return on investment is four times in terms of just financially loan the social cost. Yeah, it's an utter no-brainer and just simple economic rationalism says this. You, you would spend much more on that. The trouble is when you're getting overweight, you're getting diabetes, you have the risk factors for cancer. You don't wake up that morning bleeding in the street and have to be patched up by the ambulance. Mm. So it's quite a benign problem and, and so we haven't faced it. And then we, we see data with fitness, particularly, you know, fitness is medicine. Being physically fit is pretty much the single most important thing you can do for your, both your longevity and also the, the quality of your life, you know, reducing morbidity in medical terms. Mm. Yet the investment is, is grossly underestimated, underinvested in rather. And that's just, we need to make more noise about that. And I keep intent to, and do do that. Mm. Uh, the other one, food is medicine. I mean, it's even more obvious, and, and, and that's been said since the, the ancient Greeks and, and the mm-hmm. philosophers of that time, you know, food by be thy medicine and, and those sorts of things. We keep saying it. At the turn of the 20th century, Thomas Edison was saying, look, you know, the physician of the future is not going to be administering pills. They're going to be talking to people about their lifestyle. They're going to be thinking mostly about what they eat. And, and it's just never come to pass. You know, he invented the light bulb. That worked out all right, but his, his major prophecy mm-hmm. hasn't come to pass, but should. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and it's I guess for us in the industry today, there's a little bit of confusion around the food concept. There's lots of new ideas and strategies out there. What would you say is something that we, as you know, health and fitness professionals, should be taking into consideration from a food perspective? You know, is there any specific forms that you prefer to refer to, or anything like that? Yeah, I think the nutrition space is so interesting for me, and like I think some knowledge of biology is really useful for understanding how human respond to, to food and the different effects that different nutrients have on different mm-hmm. people. And specifically, there's a lot of talk about, well, you know, you get too fat because you eat more calories than you expend. And at one level, that's true. Mm-hmm. But it assumes that the human biology is this open-loop system without complex neural and, and hormonal and endocrinological feedback. And that's just not true. It's, it is this partially closed system. And so what you eat depends on a whole lot of internal factors going on. And I think, to me, the major important things to separate the science from the fiction, controlling your blood glucose, if you can't control the sugars in your blood, then you need to adjust your diet until you can. It's as simple as that, because without the sugary blood damages everything it touches. It glycates it, glycates proteins, mm-hmm. renders them then useless and inflamed. And if you can't control your blood sugar, you must change your diet so that you can. So, and that will be different for different people because we vary in the degree which we can tolerate carbohydrate through this mechanism of insulin resistance. And so the second thing is the amount of glucose in your blood and the amount of 
insulin you secrete across your lifetime will determine, by and large, your risk for the major chronic diseases of cancer, diabetes, vascular diseases, and, and neurological things like dementia. So that's the science of it. Mm. If you cannot control, and, and, and obviously you're going to need adequate nutrients and all that sort of stuff, but so you go low-carb keto or, or this or paleo this or whatever, actually the major factors will be to get a, well, first of all, food low in human interference, stuff that's been alive, recently alive, but mm. then you're going to have to restrict your carbohydrates more for some people and much less for other people. If you're highly active, young, insulin-sensitive male, you can eat a whole range of stuff and you'll be fine. If you're an insulin-resistant, obese, diabetic, Pacific woman in her 50s, mm. then you're going to be highly insulin-resistant and you're going to have to change things and, and restrict the starch particularly massively. And, and to me, that's that's the actual science of this. Mm. And there's a, there's more complexity of hormones and incretin hormones and, and ghrelin and leptin and these things as well, but this human system, if you fail to control those basics, you run into trouble. Yeah, and that's, I think, an area of which the industry is going where there's a lot more discussion around hormonal health and you're looking at chemical balances through the systems as well. Just for anybody that may not be 100% sure, can you just explain what insulin resistance is and what effect that can have as a result of exercise even? So there's about a teaspoon of glucose in your blood Mm -hmm. and that's the homeostatic level. If it goes lower than that, you'll die. That's you don't have to eat any carbohydrates to maintain that. You'll scavenge glucose from fatty acid oxidation, proteins and whatnot. Mm. If it goes higher than that, sugary blood glycates, damages everything it touches. So the body makes quite a effort to remove that glucose mm. and use it as fuel. Mm-hmm. And the key hormone for that is insulin. It's insulin secreted from the pancreas. First thing it does is shut down fat burning. So you prioritise glucose to be burnt, which is great. That's what you want to do. Mm-hmm. And... The trouble is, though, and, and, and then you shunt that glucose into cells, but if you're inactive, and this is why activity is so important, then it, it can't be shunted into those cells. It'll try the liver if that's full as well because you're inactive, it'll store it as fat. So activity confers insulin sensitivity, helps you remove glucose and be sensitive to insulin signalling. Mm-hmm. There's a whole bunch of things that make you insulin resistance, from stress to a poor night's sleep to being too fat to poor quality fats to sugar itself to not enough sunlight to alcohol, to just psychological stress, mm-hmm. to, to your age, to yeah. your stage in life. Yeah. And if you're insulin resistant, then the exact same meal gives you much higher insulin for much longer, mm-hmm. which means you shut down your fat burning for much longer, you're in a storage mode for much longer, you, you like to spontaneously reduce the amount of activity that you do. And so insulin resistance is part of modern life. We should minimise that. Exercise is pretty much the most effective treatment. But if you're going to shove down sugar and starch while you're insulin resistant, then you're going to end up with a metabolic concoction that doesn't help your health in the long term. Yeah. And if by chance a client was to present to a trainer and they mentioned that they've been you know, told they've got insulin resistance, yeah. is there a specific recommendation you could provide for those trainers as a way of education or you know, conversation they could have with that client at all? Well, I think the, the thing is to figure out why they're insulin resistant. They're insulin resistant because a perimenopausal or postmenopausal woman, which is, is just yep. normal because we've probably wanted grandmothers to survive and that's just a normal mechanism. And, and actually a little bit of extra weight there is mm. quite good. Are they insulin resistant because they're stressed out, they're not going out in the sun like they should and they're not exercising, so there's some solutions there. Mm-hmm. Or they're insulin resistant because they're, they're just drinking too much and eating a lot of sugar. So the, the solution depends on the cause and because there's multiple causes then then there's multiple solutions. I would say though that 
you know, exercise at every stop, both some high-intensity stuff, which, mm-hmm. which confers some immediate benefits and some longer, easier stuff are both highly beneficial for different reasons. Right. Fantastic. And I think that uh, that's important because we're finding that there's an increase in those areas specifically within the industry and those conversations are being more prominent within the training environment. Do you feel that you've, you've seen that happening a, li- a lot more in the industry as, as the years progress? Yeah, I think the industry is really growing up and, I, and I, I'm seeing a lot more people take on nutrition and exercise at the same time and seeing that as a competency they can concurrently hold and that's, like, that's really important. Like, frankly, the TEDx associations haven't moved at the speed they've needed to move at to stay with the current science and they're still, we're still stuck with recommendations, dietary guidelines that are decades out of date. Well, they were never in date. They were just wrong to start with. And I think we see in the fitness industry a willingness to move more fluidly with this changing science, and that's good. Yeah. And so with the problems with dietary guidelines and things, that why, why is fasting, mentioned why is fasting a great hack? Is, is there anything specific you want to expend on, on that, around that topic? Oh, well, fasting is just really interesting. And just remember, you're talking to the guy that previous, in previous lives couldn't fathom this idea, but once you get into the science, it becomes reasonably convincing that really there was no reason that humans would have been in a fed state the whole time. In fact, it's highly likely we were in an unfed state. Mm. And because humans have such big brains, we've got to provide energy to those brains when we haven't got food. And the only real way to do that is through nutritional ketosis and ketone metabolism. Mm -hmm. And so we're very, very good fat burners and we're very, very good fat stores compared to every other animal. Mm. This is our huge advantage. And therefore we alternate between that catabolic ketogenic state where the cells go into this particular state called autophagy, where you've got this basically a self-cleaning program at the cellular level, mm-hmm. tidying up nutrient stress, you know, lack of food going, just recycle and tidy up stuff, use that mm-hmm. for nutrients. And that seems to be a crucial thing for helping you get A, more insulin sensitive, but B, regenerating your immune system, mm-hmm. sending signals that you produce your own antioxidants endogenously, a whole range of things. But equally, then you need to go back into that anabolic, that growth state on occasions as well. So fasting provides a, an, an easy mechanism to mi- mimic the sort of human condition, which is fed, fasted, fed, fasted, fed, fasted. And if you do what I call the shopping mall test, go into the food court at your local shopping mall, mm-hmm. no one there will ever be in that catabolic clean-up autophagic state. They're in this anabolic state the whole time, so they're constantly growing. They're never removing the cells that need to be cleaned up. They're never recycling mitochondria, and they're never recycling immune cells. Mm-hmm. And you know, fasting is just a great, uh, especially the intermittent fasting, where you restrict your eating window, but it's a great way to do that. Yeah, fantastic. And can we just get a bit of an explanation around the ins and outs of a low-carb or keto diet? Can you expand on that? You look excited when I said that to you. I don't know why, but you, this big smile came across your face. Let's have a, let's have a chat about that. What, what can you share with us on, on the, those areas? Well, it's interesting. I've, I was just preparing to do a talk and I, I looked on CNN's site to see what they had to say about ketogenic diets. In the same week, there's a there's an article going that the ketogenic diet is crushing Weight Watchers, mm. which is interesting. Mm. The same week, it's also been ranked by nutrition expert as being the worst of every possible diet, and it's, it's above the second last one, which, believe it or not, is the uro- urine diet, mm. which is, as its name suggests. Yes. And so, <laughs> this, 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 <laughs> this is a podcast in itself, I'm yeah, sure. Wow, well, <laughs> someone else can do that one. Yeah. So 
We see that stuff and we're quite surprised because we do that research ourselves. We've done a couple of randomised trials. We do our own work with clients. We do quite a lot of work with athletes, especially endurance athletes, and, and by and large get quite good results. We, we're always adjusting things. And we go, well, like this state of nutritional ketosis, people seem to enjoy that there's an induction period, it's not too bad, but they double their ability to oxidise free fatty acids when they're resting and when they're doing moderate, easy exercise. And the consequence when you burn fat as your primary fuel source is it's, you're producing less oxidative stress, less glycation, less inflammation, which the, the trilogy is the cause of, of not feeling great and, and poor health, including immune health and everything else. So what's the problem with that? And the answer is I don't think there is a problem with that, but it's not, I don't think that's, people go on a ketogenic diet and want to be permanently in this nutritional ketosis. I think that's a mistake. Mm. They discover they can do without carbohydrates and they go, oh, carbs are out. I'm just not going to eat carbs again. That's a mistake. So what I really like is more of a cyclical ketogenic diet or a, a weekend non-ketogenic diet can, can be quite, quite fun. Mm. But all with the base of concentrating by and large on on actual food that would, was recently live running around in nature. Mm. Now, the, the, the problem with that, of course, is you go to any supermarket and you go to the aisle end and it's it's mm. three bags of salt and vinegar chips for five bucks. And ev- <laughs> well, well, even I look at that and it's my job to not buy these things yes. and just go, mm. five bucks. Oh, well, well you have to. You, you can't, can't, mm. can't not buy those. I'm going to buy those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the food environment is still pathological yeah. to us. But the beauty of a ketogenic diet is that the hunger signals are much more easily understood. So if you go to the supermarket full, not hungry, then there's a much better chance that you're going to get out of there without buying so much junk than if you're on a low-fat diet and you go in uh, without being able to receive the right signals. Mm, that's very interesting. And I think I fall into the old three for $5 habit sometimes myself, but we try to avoid it where we can. So just, just moving forward, what do you see as being some objectives you'd like to see introduced or some outcomes you'd like to see happen within the health and fitness industry around these areas within the next sort of few years? What, what are some suggestions you could put forward? Well, the big suggestion is that we spend 10% of the health budget on health. I mean, that would massively change mm. the way the health and, and especially the fitness industry is engaged because you'd need a workforce to actually mm. deal with that. You know, that, that is $8 billion mm. of government money mm. and, and it would, as I say, it returns four times on what's currently going on. And, and that's not enough, mm. but just imagine that. Just imagine that. And so the thing is, you ask any Australian or New Zealander what they want out of life, mm. and it's to live a long, healthy life. And you ask them what's the most important things in their life. It's their family, it's their friends, and it's their health. And it can be in, in any of any order, but they're all, that's, that's the top three. Everyone says that. Mm. Well, virtually everyone says that. And we don't invest in it. And more astonishingly, we invest a third of the health budget. So, what's it, you know... 27 billion Australian dollars in the last three months of people's lives for care that they didn't want that doesn't increase the quality of their life. Mm-hmm. You know, so we over-medicalised death and under-medicalised and underspent on actual health. And so that's what needs to change yeah. straight away. Second of all, we stop needing to... The dietitians seem to think they've owned nutrition and that's unnecessary. Mm-hmm. There's, not, there's not some secret code here. Mm-hmm. There's some basic biology that we can mm-hmm. all learn and understand and we can get big food out of it. Mm. So the Dietitian Association of Australia has just thankfully ditched their many decades of big food sponsorship, so maybe things will change a bit there, but that's, that's a massive influence as well. So mm. I'd, I'd go so far as to say we should, be, we should have legislation to stop 
those health bodies interacting with big food because it's, it's a conflict of interest, it's untenable. Yeah. So, so that's the next thing. And, and we can let go of having to lock up dietitians and, and nutritionism mm-hmm. with, with particular professions that should be more open. Fantastic. And if somebody's listening to this and they're like, well, what, what should be my next steps? What should I go and do to try and feel more confident or comfortable knowing more about these specific topics? And what would you recommend? Well, there's plenty of, there's plenty of places that offer some stuff online, but I, I, well, you could, you could look at my books for a start. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah, well, I, I wasn't meaning to do that, but they, yeah. I've written, whenever I write, especially in my What the Fat books, I try to mm. write a sort of practice chapter. Mm-hmm. And, and a really solid, ref, well-referenced, lay-written science because my goal in life is to translate the science into, into practice. Yeah. We've also started a, a social enterprise called Precure with a K, and so Precure.com, and so we offer a Level 1 certificate in health coaching and then we're doing a bunch of our Level 2 nutrition courses at the moment. You can subscribe to that and just get the courses. They keep coming. Mm-hmm. And so, again, the idea is to both help the health and fitness industry but also help the health profession themselves because remember the reality is that most doctors and nurses physios have next to no training in nutrition particularly Mm -hmm. and our goal is really to try and help them first of all get interested in it for their own health and then translate that into their patients. Excellent and are you on social media is there a way that people can follow you or just with the information you've provided is that the best way to find out some great stuff you're doing in the industry at the moment? Yep, so look me up on the internet, but you'll see that the two main feeds are through precure.com and it's, it's social media and through whatthefatbook.com and it's social media be two outlets. Fantastic. Well, Grant, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. I've just got about four more podcasts we can, we can open up from this conversation. Thank you very much. We appreciate your time and yeah, we, we look forward to seeing what, what you've got in the future. Thanks for having me. For a huge range of online nutrition courses, including Networks Nutrition Intensive by Dr. Rebecca Reynolds, accredited for CECs and other continuing education points, go to the Network website, select the Courses tab, and click on Nutrition. The Nutrition Intensive modules include Nutrition Strategies for Strength and Size, Fueling Fat Loss, and Effective Nutrition Coaching. Network members save up to 30%, so head to fitnessnetwork.com.au today to grow your skill set and fitness career. And for an amazing weekend of face-to-face learning, be sure to register for Filex, the main event on the fitness industry calendar at filex.com.au.